0: I'm very optimistic long-term about the impact of AI. I think it's going to do amazing things for the workplace, for businesses, for society. But I think we got to be very realistic that this is very tangible technology that is going to be infused into our daily workflows and processes, whether we want it or not. Welcome to episode 44 of the Marketing AI Show. I am your host, Paul Racer, along with my co-host, Mike Caput, Chief Content Officer at Marketing Institute and co-author of our book, Marketing, Artificial Intelligence, AI Marketing and Future of Business, which, by the way, if you have read it and found it valuable, we would love if you took a few minutes to share a rating and review on Amazon. One, we really appreciate the sport, and two, it actually makes a big difference in others discovering the book and starting their AI learning journey. So again, if you've you've read the book, uh, we appreciate that. And if you have a moment, throw a review on Amazon. All right. This episode is brought to us by BrandOps. BrandOps is built to optimize your marketing strategy, delivering the most complete view of marketing performance, allowing you to compare results to competitors and benchmarks. Leaders use it to know which messages and activities will most effectively improve results. Brandops also improves your generative marketing. With BrandOps, your content is more original, relevant to your audience, and connected to your business. Find out more and get a special listener offer. Visit brandops.io slash marketingai show. That's brandops.io forward slash marketing show. And this episode is also brought to us by the 4th Annual Marketing AI Conference, or MACon uh, Returns to Cleveland, Ohio this summer. Join us July 26th to the 28th for the largest and most exciting event yet. The conference brings together hundreds of professionals. We're actually going to be announcing the agenda. I guess this is like the first time I'm saying this. The agenda should go live. My event team's going to kill me if I'm, I'm wrong on this, but in the next like 10 days. <laughs> so... It's about 80%. We're going to announce all the breakout sessions and a few of the main stage sessions. Uh, there's, there's going to be probably another uh, six to eight announcements over May and June on some of the other main stage items. But uh, yeah, just a heads up, check out macon.ai uh, in the coming weeks here. We're going to have the agenda go live. Um, so this year's event's going to have, I, we're, we're trending towards 500. I don't know what the number is we're going to land on. Honestly, I don't think anybody in the event world right now knows how to project many people are actually going to show up at these events uh we are trending way above uh what we thought we were going to attract so i would say macon is um getting lots of interest this year uh, it's going really well in terms of attendance numbers so we'll be at the cleveland convention center right across from the rock and roll hall of fame we would love to see you in person mike will be presenting uh, i'll be there you know obviously doing some talks and uh we're gonna have an amazing collection of speakers and a great community of attendees for you to network with So again. You can check that out. Early bird pricing is going on right now, makeon.ai. Hope you see you there. All right. On to the show. Again, if you're new, uh, Mike and I pick three main topics to go through each week, kind of look at what's going on in the world of AI. We pick three things that we think are going to be most relevant and interesting to you. And then we throw a few things in rapid fire at the end uh, if we can't fit everything into the main topics. All right, Mike, it's all you.
1: All right. First up this week, Paul, we got an in-depth inside look into the story behind is potential on the way we work. And the takeaway is the way we all work is about to change in major ways, thanks to ChatGPT. And few are actually ready for how fast this change is going to happen. And we say this because in a new TED Talk, OpenAI co-founder and president Greg Brockman showed off the power and potential of the new ChatGPT plugins. So these are the plugins that can help ChatGPT browse the internet and interact with third-party services and applications. And the results are pretty stunning because we basically got a preview of AI agents that can take actions in the real world to help us with our work. In the talk, Brockman shows off some ways that knowledge workers will soon work hand in hand with machines and how this is going to start changing things months or even weeks from now, not years. This is a change that appears to be here. Now, Paul, when you watched this, what were some of the capabilities from this talk that he showed off that kind of jumped out at you as notable?
0: Well, first, I just thought it was a... I was watching this on Saturday morning, and and I was I just thought it was a stunning contrast to what we had seen earlier in the week from Google when they did their sixty minutes segment on, uh, with Bard, um, and the the Fox thing with Elon, whatever that was. So, I, again, like I don't, I don't know if people know my background, but I I was a PR major, so I came out of college out of the journalism school with a public relations degree, and. Spent, you know, the first five years of my career doing PR, crisis communications, media relations work, and then started my own agency. And we did some PR work. We didn't do a ton, but barrier in my career was a lot of what I did. And and that 60 minutes thing with Google, I mean, I love Google. Bard's going to probably be amazing, but that was really painful to watch. Like it was just a pure PR play. Um, Sundar doesn't do interviews. And so just the fact that he was even there doing that interview um was interesting but then it it was just like i forget the guy's name that was doing the interview scott something i don't don't watch 60 minutes very often so i don't i don't know all the details (laughs) but um it was as though he had never seen gpt three or four like it was this stunning like oh my gosh i can't believe it's doing this thing and i get that he's probably trying to simulate how viewers would react to the technology but It came across to me as like, did you not do research before you did this interview? Like, had you Hmm. never seen generative AI technology? Because there was nothing that Google showed in that demo on 60 Minutes that was anything new. It was just that Google was doing it with BARD, but like the tech was six months old to the average person who knew what they were looking at. So anyway, so I, I don't know. So the 60 minutes thing was just painful and um I, I don't even want to get into the fox thing with elon it was just this dystopian <laughs> joke and it was to distract from other stuff that was happening in the world and in, in elon's week and just really bad um so to watch this just pure demonstration of real world technology with real world use cases Was kind of a breath of fresh air and a week of PR bluster uh, in the industry, and like that was the first thing that jumped on me. The second is I think Greg should be in the public more. Um, You know, I think we've talked previously about Sam Altman and you know some of his, um, you know, I, I guess his own personal. Uh, statements about his weakness as like the front man for this whole thing mm-hmm. and as a CEO and you know maybe he lacks empathy toward the, the average person is in his own kind of words from the Lex Freeman interview where Greg just comes across as a, a very intelligent um, technically minded person who has the ability to kind of explain in a very simple way how things are working. And I just feel, it felt very authentic to me. And so the, if you haven't seen it yet, it's about a 15 minute Ted talk presentation followed by a 15 minute interview with Chris Anderson. And the whole thing just felt very real. And I just appreciated that after going through the week of what we had gone through. So, uh, with all that being said, I think that the, when he started getting into actually showing ChatGPT live connected to the browser and connected to the plugins, and again, if you, if you haven't heard our past episode or haven't like followed along with plugins, basically what's going to happen is in ChatGPT, you will have the ability to have these plugins that go out to different sites and enable you to get kind of real-time data out of those sites and then be able to take actions on them. So he showed the example of making a menu um, based on an image. He had the generative AI create an image of a, of a meal and then uh, use the AI to assess what were the... Uh, food items within that image, and then use that to build a shopping list. And then in theory, you could just check out and have uh, those products available to you. So it was this whole incredible demonstration going from just a single prompt of, you know, create a meal for me, to I'm going to order the items that are in this image I created so I can make this meal. And then that was fascinating enough. But to me, the real powerful one is probably the most simple one, which was asking Excel to analyze data. And this is the one I've been hot on for years. It's like, whether you use a business intelligence tool to create your charts and analyze your information, or you just have it built within your marketing platforms, like HubSpot, for example, think about what it takes to get insights out of that data. Like in Excel, you have to learn how to run pivot tables. Like the average marketer has no idea how to build a pivot table. Like. And then even when you do, like I used to do this all the time. We would run, analyze research data. I would like spend five hours relearning how to use Excel and like maximize its value and the different shortcuts and stuff. And then I wouldn't have to do it again for six months. And then I'd go back and be like, man, how do you build a pivot table again? And I would spend an hour relearning how to do this stuff just to get insights out of the data. And the example he showed was you just go in and say uh find find me this anomaly or find me this you know forecast this or find that, and it just it does it, and then it builds charts on it and then I thought the thing that was most interesting is he was looking at year over year data and he was comparing two thousand twenty three to two thousand and twenty two well, obviously we only have four months of data in two thousand and twenty three so the chart that it built showed a drop off, so he said, okay project out the rest of 2023 based on that data. And it actually was then able to just go through and build an updated projection. So it understood exactly what it was asking. It delivered exactly what he wanted. And that to me was the one where you start to really see how this technology is going to be infused into everything. We've talked about Microsoft 365 Copilot and Google Workspace. And you start to see how all of the things that the average knowledge worker does is going to be assisted in a really efficient way. So again, if it just me going in and having to relearn how to run pivot tables and then how to run the analysis off of those pivot tables and then building the charts, like what he showed in a minute and a half, if I had wanted to do that myself as someone who has worked in Excel for 20 some years, I probably would have taken an hour or two because I would have had to have gone back and refigured out how to do it all Um, you know, made all these decisions, figured out what I want to ask of it. And so just that is such a tangible demonstration of the kind of efficiency we're going to see gained by knowledge workers
1: that I just, I
0: thought it was really, really well done and really simple.
1: So talk to me a little bit more about the impact we might see here, because you posted about this on LinkedIn and you mentioned that we're going to start seeing humans and machines working together. Quote, not years from now, but months, maybe weeks from now. What led you to say that?
0: The plugins are real. <laughs> that was what led me to say it. So I have the browsing plugin in ChatGPT right now, and I've had it for weeks. And it it changes things. Like once you can, you know, again, it's like I always kind of backtrack. I don't, you know, how familiar are people with ChatGPT or how much they've experimented. But the problem with ChatGPT and other AI writing tools and language models right now is they make stuff up. So Hallucination is the the technical term for it. So to be able to connect to a browser where it can verify facts and cite the sources, or at least cite information that supports what was created by the language model, that's really interesting. But when you start adding these other plugins to connect to your, you know, as a marketer, you can start to imagine being connected to a social media platform or a CRM platform or your email platform. Um, Where it can go and now not only extract information in real time based on a prompt or a question, but it can take action on your behalf based on this stuff. So once you see this and you realize, okay, well, as soon as they start turning these plugins on, we're all going to have access to this. Mm. Or uh, as soon as Microsoft turns 365 Copilot on for everyone who has Microsoft, or as soon as Google turns on Google Workspace AI. This, this stuff is, it's not like there's some technological breakthrough that has to occur for the average knowledge worker to have access to this technology. The only thing that has to occur is these tech companies have to turn the features on that already exist. And if they decide to do that tomorrow, then you got to access tomorrow. Mm. If it's a week from now, then you got access then. So that's why I'm saying like, there's a chance it could be a few months. Like maybe they're going to run into some issues with the testing and realize, okay, we got to do some more work, but the tech exists already. It it literally is just them turning it on and saying, "Okay, here, the first 100,000 users, you have access to this. And based on OpenAI's release schedule, I cannot imagine if they're showing this and they've already talked about it a month ago that they're going to wait six months to release this. So Mm. I'm under the assumption basically any day now, like you're going to go into chat GPT if you're paying your 20 bucks a month and you're going to have plugins. And then that plug-in, plug-in ecosystem is going to explode like when you're going to have hundreds of them or thousands of them by the end of the year, potentially, depending on how much open AI pushes the release of these things.
1: So you gave a really good example of in your own work, this you know, thing that might take you an hour to do typically, you're able to do in a couple of minutes. Now, there's obvious productivity gains immediately from using this technology, but do those productivity gains over time impact jobs too? I don't know how they don't like, I
0: I really don't. And I, I know we talked about this at length last week, um, you know, in episode 43 about knowledge work, but I really just don't understand how you could watch something like this and then go watch, you know, like the co-pilot, you know, Microsoft 365 co-pilot minute and a half demo or the workspace demo and not arrive at the conclusion that knowledge work jobs are in trouble. Like they we're just not ready for this. And we talked about this and, you know, in the last episode, if you didn't listen to it, we gave kind of some ways to start it moving in a positive direction, like actions you can take to try and avoid this outcome where we lose a bunch of knowledge work jobs in the near term. But again, having talked to a lot of these CEOs, having talked to a lot of, you know, the investors who, you know, are pushing for efficiency within organizations. And when you look at the real world applications once you can do this stuff, I, I really just don't see a, a scenario where, where it doesn't have an impact. Um, so, again, I'm, I'm very optimistic long-term about the impact of AI. I think it's going to do amazing things for, for the workplace, for businesses, for society. But I think we got to be very realistic that this is, this is very tangible technology that is going to be infused into our daily workflows and processes, whether we want it or not by the end of the year in most industries and in most companies. And let's be real, like they're not ready. Like most enterprises are just not even close to being ready for what this stuff's going to enable. So I, again, yeah, it's like our whole call to action last week was you got to accept this and take action, like. You cannot just pretend like it's not going to transform knowledge work. It is. Mm. And I, I don't even know how you debate that. Like, I don't know if I said this last week, but somebody actually called it a clown shoes opinion, like re- replied to my LinkedIn thing with, and I was like, that that's great. Like, like that's very productive way to think about this. Like good luck. <laughs> like if that's what you actually think. And and that was like, you know, I could sit here and listen to a very real argument of like a five to 10 X productivity in some roles and in some industries where you could see a massive, massive transformation. I was just making the argument, like, maybe it's like 20 to 30%, like, mm. but even that is transformational in most organizations, five to 10 X is really, really hard to comprehend. Um, and maybe, maybe that isn't what you get to, like, you don't get five, 10 X in every profession and in every industry, but it, it, it's hard to argue you won't in some like coding, like it not mm-hmm absolutely doable within coding and i think writing is another one where it's going to be you know 20 to 30 percent i i feel it's an insanely conservative estimate for the efficiency that can be gained in writing Hmm. um, for internal external communications and things like that um but we'll see i mean i i just i just still encourage people i think it's way safer right now to move forward under the assumption that knowledge work is going to be transformed in the very near future than to pretend like it's not and be wrong six months from now, then you're going to be in trouble. Like, I think it'd just be way better to watch this demo, go look at other real-world demos, figure it out for yourself, come to that conclusion on your own. But, you know, I think it's really important that people accept this tech
1: is going to be with us very soon. So next up, we have Another story about how fast everything is moving. So Google just announced some huge AI updates, but some within Google are uh, saying the company is actually making ethical lapses because they're rushing to release features and new products in competition with OpenAI and others. So first, let's run through really quick these updates, and then we'll talk about that ethical piece. The first update is that Google announced its AI research team internally called Brain, would merge with DeepMind, which is the company that Google acquired in 2014 and headed by AI leader Demis Hassabis. So this merged entity will be called Google DeepMind and essentially unify the company's AI research and development efforts. Now, at the same time, Google also revealed, or it was revealed rather, that Google is working on a project titled Magi. And it involves Google reinventing its core search engine from the ground up to be an AI-first product. And it also includes adding more AI features in the short term to the search engine that we all use every day. Now, details are really light at the moment, but the New York Times confirmed that some of these AI-powered features will roll out in the US by the end of this year and that ads will remain part of AI powered search results, at least for the immediate future. Now last but not least, Google also announced that BARD has been updated with new features to actually help you code. So like some of the other generative AI coding tools out there, BARD can now generate code and help you debug code. So as these updates are rolling out, we got some reporting from Bloomberg that revealed that some Google employees actually think the company is making ethical lapses because they're moving too fast. And the criticism appeared to center around BARD specifically. Some employees expressed concerns that BARD's responses were just not accurate or helpful, and others actually said some of the responses were downright dangerous advice. So in one high-profile example, Bard kept providing responses on how to land a plane when prompted, and every one of those responses, if you followed it, would have crashed the plane. So it sounds like Google's internal staff are actually starting to push back a bit on some of the pace of change and innovation happening in the company and seem to have some legitimate reasons for doing so. So I want to unpack these one at a time. First off, what did you think of the merger between Google Brain and DeepMind. So you followed DeepMind for a long time, since its beginning. Why is this such a big deal?
0: A a little history lesson for people who aren't familiar. So Google Brain was started in 2011. It came out of the X labs at uh, at Google, and it was founded by Jeff Dean, Greg Corrado and Andrew Ng. So Andrew Ng may sound familiar to some people. He went on to be the chief scientist at um, baidu he was he founded deep landing.ai and he's the chairman and co-founder of coursera so andrew is a, a you know a major player in in the modern age of ai so google brain is a massively influential research lab they also uh, are the lab that attention is all you need came out of which we have talked about on the show before Attention is all you need is the research paper from 2017 that created the transformer architecture, which is the basis for generative AI. It's the basis for GPT, GPT-3, 4, whatever. Two of the eight authors of that paper went on to found character.ai, which is a you know a language company and Cohere, which we've talked about a number of times on the show, which is also a language model company. So Google Brain is a, a massive enterprise. It. It was there to innovate, but it was also there to, in theory, commercialize that innovation. Um, DeepMind was founded in 2010 by Demis Asaba, Shane Legge, and Mustafa Salomon. Um, Demis and Shane are still with DeepMind, obviously. Mustafa went on to uh, co-found Inflection AI, which is backed by Reid Hoffman. Reid Hoffman, LinkedIn, and formerly PayPal. Uh, inflection is one of the companies we've talked about that's working on, uh, AI, uh, human interaction, the ability to give machines action. So there's some major players read, uh, read genius makers by Cade Metz. If you want to like really dig into the story of these, these different research labs, it's fascinating. Okay. So now I'll say as someone who has uh, watched closely this space for the last decade, I don't see how this works. Like mm. I-, I could be completely wrong here. But every interview I've ever listened to with Demis, and I've probably listened to most interviews he's ever done, um, they, the reason he sold to Google was because he was a researcher, an academic researcher, and he believes in the future of artificial general intelligence, basically solving all intelligence and saving humanity. Like he's, mm-hmm. He is very clear in his mission of why DeepMind was created. And the reason he sold it to Google, which was talked a little bit about in that 60 minutes PR stunt, which was actually probably the best part of it was the interview with Demis. Um, he sold it to have access to their compute power, to, to have access to the ability to advance his mission to solve intelligence. Demis didn't do anything ever to be able to like save Google's ad business mm-hmm. and like figure out how to build a better search engine. like. I've never once heard him talk about any motivation to do any of the things that right now are critical to Google's near-term future. So it just seems like a forced marriage of two research labs that from everything I've ever heard don't even really work together. Like Mm. they don't, they're not complementary necessarily. It just seems like they're being forced into this arrangement because Google's in this really crazy spot where all of a sudden they have to solve for some really challenging um, things on the commercial side of the business, and so I have I have no idea what the agreements are, how this stuff's going to be structured. But just from like a thirty thousand foot view, it just seems to me like six to twelve months from now we're going to read some stories about how this is not working as they had hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that's my first thought. Uh, my second is. I mean, to me, DeepMind and OpenAI are obviously two of the most important research labs ever. Um, You could maybe throw Meta in there um, and Google Brain certainly to a degree. So I I think you are consolidating some of the brightest minds in human history and you're putting them together. And maybe something magic comes out of this, Um, I hope. But I also, I really don't hope that Demis's vision and mission for DeepMind gets lost in this crazy competition that has been created all of a sudden. Because I've said before, I, I think Demis is, is going to end up being one of the most important people in human history. Like mm. What he's working on solving there and what they've already done with AlphaFold and predicting of proteins, they're working on solving human biology. They want to get into climate change, nuclear fusion and clean energy. Like they're working on some amazing stuff at deep, man. And I just, I hope it doesn't get lost. And I got to think if it does, then this falls apart really fast because again, that he's very, very clear that that is what he's working on and it's not this commercialized stuff. So Hmm. we'll see, should be interesting.
1: It will definitely be interesting. And so, you know, on the second part of this. There's obviously not much information yet on the Magi updates, but it sounds like something is at least coming. Do you see or predict a major change coming in Google search and its and ripple effects on marketers and business people that rely on search?
0: Again, I have no inside information on this, but the more I think about this and kind of like consider what's happening I don't know that there doesn't come a day where Microsoft regrets what they've done. Like mm-hmm. if there was one company when it comes to AI, I just, I would never bet against it's Google. Like mm-hmm. the the researchers they have, the history with AI, the, the data that they have, um, you know, if they choose to build a multimodal engine where you can train it on YouTube videos and all the other proprietary data they have access to, I just feel like once Google kind of like they got stunned like they got hit first and they weren't ready for it there's you know you hear this kind of analogy of like a wartime kind of company and um this idea that you're you know really fine tuned against a highly competitive environment where it, it's like a winner take all kind of feel and um everybody's putting their best stuff forward that's not Google like they, mm. they have just been they've been the dominant player with no real challenge insane innovation but they were allowing like DeepMind to lose a billion dollars a year because they were working on this amazing future stuff and like it just it was just going good and then somebody shows up and takes a shot at them and it sort of stuns them and they're not designed to react quickly there's probably too much middle management stuff ethics stuff we'll get into. like There's these layers of ethics where basically the ethical teams are pretty much there to say, nope, don't release it yet. Don't release it yet. Don't release it yet. And then OpenAI is like, screw it, we're releasing it. And then it's like, well, but our ethics team says we can't release it yet. And OpenAI did anyway. Now what do we do? And so I feel like a lot of what Google's been doing right now is just getting out in the market saying, hey, we're working on stuff like this, the 60 minutes thing. Should they have done it? No, it was terrible, but they didn't want to wait till May 5th or whenever their developer conference is to say, here's what we're doing because shareholders are saying, what are you doing? Like, you know, you can't wait months before you start talking about this. Somehow Apple gets away with it. Like nobody's grilling (laughs) Apple about their AI and Apple will just show up, do some amazing stuff and go back, you know, in a shell for six months. But it doesn't work that way for Google because it's direct competition from Microsoft and OpenAI. So I feel like they, they may have woke a sleeping giant. And I think before 2023 is up, whether it's Magi or whatever they're going to call it, once Google gets their stuff together, hmm. I, I mean, just like look out from a competitive perspective, but also from what we're going to have access to. And again, that's why I keep telling people like, if you think knowledge work is safe just because it feels better to you to believe that, that's fine. But I'm talking about tech that exists right now where we're arguing to see disruption, Mm. people aren't even considering, oh my gosh, like what if Google figures out a safe way to come up with something even more powerful, or they start doing what they're doing with bar where it's like, okay, now it can code. Um, They have a lot of data about how to do this stuff that other people don't have. And if they can find ways to securely release it, I just think it's going to be a really fascinating, you know, 2023 and beyond. Um, They're not going to go down quietly. Like I just, I would not bet against Google at some point here, uh, figuring this stuff out.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like as they make these moves based on some of the comments around ethics that their team has had that there's definitely some tension with moving into that wartime footing um do you agree with those critiques that there have been ethical lapses and is this just a Google problem or is this something every AI company encounters
0: i don't even think it's debatable i don't think google would debate it mm-hmm. like i was listening to an interview i forget who was big tech podcast I, I can't remember who it was um, but they were talking about like a internal document from December that got leaked. That was a Google doc that, that said like, they knew that there was issues with copyright in the training of these language models. Like they haven't publicly acknowledged it, but they knew they were going to probably get sued based on this. It was one of the reasons they weren't moving forward. Not the reason. Um, but a hundred percent, like they, they know that there's, these things are dangerous, but, uh, OpenAI released it. And OpenAI's belief, if you listen to the interview with Greg Brockman, is like, we know they're dangerous, but we feel like it's way better now in these early phases to put them out there, find the dangers, fix the dangers, versus waiting till the tech is three years more advanced and then throwing it out into the world and saying, here you go. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, what in the heck? Like we don't even need knowledge work jobs anymore. We don't need writers. We're not like whatever that future state is. And I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but that's open AI's feeling is as this tech gets more and more advanced, the impact is going to be even greater. Mm. So we would way prefer to put it out into the world now. Yes, it's not going to be perfect. Yes, it's going to make mistakes. It may have some ethical lapses, but it's better that we learn and focus on how to improve it than just release the end product three years, five years from now, whatever it is, Mm. where Google couldn't take that approach. Like if they made a mistake, you know, it cost them share. You saw the same thing with Meta. They've released a couple of things they had to pull back. Microsoft released that Taybot years ago they had to pull back. So for whatever reason, it took OpenAI who just, I don't know, didn't care, but just didn't have as much to lose to put this product out into the world. And all the other labs that had these ethical teams in place to prevent harm from being done, it, it, it was just a barrier. And it was probably the right barrier. Mm-hmm. But now the question is, you know, do they have, I don't want I want this to come across as uncaring, but like, do they have the luxury of adhering to all those same ethical guidelines they used to? Mm-hmm. And the answer in this environment is it doesn't appear that way. Like I wouldn't want to have to be the CEO making those decisions, but um the reality is CEOs that have been running these major tech companies in um, when things were good, when everything seemed to keep going up and to the right, like growth was good, competition wasn't that stiff. You weren't going to have competitors coming out of nowhere. And and those companies, you know, were built on culture and built on, you know, doing everything the right way and having this amazing brand and um, and sometimes that's just not the kind of company you need in an environment like this like mm-hmm. um you know i think some of these tech companies that never had layoffs before and now they lay off 10%, 15% of the workforce they may have to lay off another 25% of the workforce like and i'm not saying go to the Elon extreme at twitter mm-hmm. but somewhere between what historically we had with these tech companies and what Elon did is probably the sweet spot and in that environment a lot of these these things that you did previously, um, they just aren't going to hold up whether they should or not. But yeah, there's, there's no doubt that they're, Google's now going to have to do things that six, 12 months ago would have gotten blocked from happening because of, you know, the ethical policies they had in place and responsible AI policies that I I think they're just shifting, um, what is, what is, what they're willing to do right now due to the competitive environment for better or for worse.
1: So our third main topic today is also related to some of the moves that have been made in the interest of competition. So AI companies like OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, Meta, etc. are starting to come under fire for how their AI tools have been trained. So one high profile example of this that happened recently is that Reddit just announced it would charge for API access. So the ability to connect to their services from third-party apps in order to use their data in various ways, this will now be charged for. And one of the main motivations here is that Reddit is one of the big sites often scraped to get data to train language models. So they're trying to stop AI companies from training models on Reddit data without compensating Reddit. They've been very clear and vocal about that. Twitter recently made a very similar move. Um, They started charging for API access and Elon Musk has publicly threatened to sue Microsoft for, he says, quote, illegally using Twitter data to train models. So on top of all this, an investigative report by the Washington Post just came out that found that large language models from Google and Meta trained on data from many major websites. Now, Historically, we just weren't sure exactly what sites were being trained on. So they found that websites like Wikipedia, the New York Times, Kickstarter, many, many others were used to train these models. Now, here's the issue. It's not necessarily always a problem to be using a website to train a model. But the report found that there was data being used from certain sites that could create some serious issues. So in one example, the post found that these models had trained on data from an ebook piracy site so they're training on books that they have access to but don't probably have the permission to use additionally the copyright symbol that we'll see within the circle appeared more than 200 million times in the data that the post studied basically pointing the finger at and confirming the fact that these models have in some cases used copyrighted data In order to train their outputs so let's first talk about these companies restricting api access um what kind of impact do you see this having on companies that develop these models they're
0: going to pay more for the data i mean the 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 companies that are the source of the training they don't want to get paid and it's a very logical play so if you have data that is that valuable to them then it makes sense that you want to get paid for it. The average like corporate brand or blogger, you know, you're you're not going to probably, this isn't going to change how you do what you do. Um, but you know, in, in theory, as a marketer, as a, a company, you create a bunch of content and you put it out there for free and you allow Google to index it. So it shows up in the search results and the exchange, the value exchange, the consideration from the legal perspective is uh we're gonna send you traffic for your data Mm. now the question becomes you know the bigger thing that all of us are trying to figure out is well if the language model is used to build a chat interface that just answers the question and they're using our data to answer that question but no one ever comes to our site anymore Mm. where's the value exchange that that's the great debate about what is the future of search and seo it's like we're just creating all this content still and nobody's. Finding it from organic search, um, but we we're not going to solve that on this podcast episode. Um, so yeah, I think the basic takeaway here is if you've got proprietary data, you're either going to train your own model like Cora did, um, you're going to just you know train a language model of your own, or you're going to charge for the data, or maybe it's both. But yeah, I think it's a natural outcome that these
1: companies with the data want want to get paid for the data that's using to train the models. So it's not the first time as. They are training models on this data that we've heard concerns around copyright, but it does seem like we are confirming or proving that at least some of these models are being trained on copyrighted material. Now, I mean, realistically, what could happen here? We've seen lawsuits. We'll probably see more, but are they going to be able to shut down? Are companies going to be able to shut down these models from training on this data?
0: I don't I don't think so. Not a lawyer. Took business law in college. That's about the extent of my lawyering. <laughs> Paid a lot of legal bills through my years <laughs> for IP related stuff. You know, so I've I, I've spent enough time in my career working on intellectual property stuff to be you know educated in the space, but certainly not a lawyer. Um, my guess has always been they're going to pay massive penalties at some point. Like yeah. a, a, at some point, it's going to kind of come down to this. But I think that the key for you as a marketer business leader is um, and I've actually heard this come up in some recent conversations with organizations is your generative AI policies you and your responsible AI principles in your company you have to address the fact that you may be using technology that was built illegally Mm. and you have to make sure you're okay with that like this isn't you're not going to get in trouble so if you go use OpenAI GPT-4 in your company and you're using it to like generate ideas and outlines and some drafts for things or whatever it is. Are you going to get sued because you use GPT-4? Again, not legal advice, but I can't fathom a scenario where that occurs. However, they may get sued and it will likely be found that they did. The thing I just referenced that like Google knew that copyright was going to be an issue because their models were probably trained on some stuff that it it shouldn't have been trained on. Um, So are you going to choose not to use large language models if it becomes obvious that they were in fact built on some illegal data? Again, my guess is no. Like I, I don't see this changing the trajectory. I do think it's going to impact in Europe. Like we talked already about Italy and I think others are going to follow on the GDPR because one of the issues I saw brought up last week and I don't know if it was a tweet. So unfortunately, I'm sorry, I can't cite it, but um, it was saying that one of the issues they're going to run into in Europe is that you have to, and I think even related to GDPR, you have to be able to um, request your data back Mm -hmm. or not be used. Well, if it if it's trained on something I put out into the world, they can't go into that language model and get Paul's training data out of it. So the fact that they can't adhere to, to the law might be a problem. So I, I do think that the way they build these models is going to have to evolve. I could see that being a scenario where it ends up that new regulations make it kind of illegal to train it the way they have. Maybe they pay a fine for past issues. Maybe they don't. But I do think there's going to be a scenario where they have to reimagine how these language models are trained. Mm. And I think the answer in the near term for most corporations is going to be, you're going to train custom versions of these models, um, where it's going to be trained largely on your own data, uh, moving forward. Now the foundational model might be an issue. So like, for example. One of the ways you could see this being solved is through one of the things we're going to talk about, stable LM, like these Mm -hmm. language models that are open source foundational models. Well, those open source language models may have the exact same issue and likely do have the exact same issue as these other ones. So I would say it's just as a marketer, business leader who's listening to this podcast, there's no real action to take here other than an awareness that the models you're going to be using likely have some legal cases that we're going to hear about over the next 10 years around how they're trained. Hmm. I don't think it's going to affect what you're going to do day to day with them, other than the fact that um, either way, you're likely going to be building custom versions of these models for your company, where you're really confident that all of your proprietary data is going to remain yours and not go into some future version of the language model. So your, your data is not training their models. Um, I think that's going to happen with or without this other stuff playing out in in courts. But lots of
1: lawyering ahead is, is what I would say.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. We've got a couple quick rapid fire topics. And you alluded to the first one, which is that Stability AI, which is the company behind the Stable Diffusion image generation model, they just released an open source language model called Stable LM. So here's how they put it. They say, quote, with the launch of the Stable LM suite of models, Stability AI is continuing to make foundational AI technology accessible to all. Our Stable LM models can generate text and code and will power a range of downstream applications. They demonstrate how small and efficient models can deliver high performance with appropriate training. So, they're basically releasing a powerful version of a language model. But for anyone unfamiliar with this space, the open source nature of this is a big deal. So, we, you know, it means anyone can access and use the models for their own purposes versus a company, say, like OpenAI completely owning the access to and the development of the model. Paul, how important was this announcement to you? Uh,
0: yeah, I think it's a big deal because Stability AI is a major player to keep an eye on <laughs> moving forward. I mean, they've been a major player in the image generation side with Stable Diffusion, but there, it's been obvious they were going to be a player in the language model space as well. We did talk about Amazon Bedrock on the last episode, and, and this is this is one of the models that'll be available through Amazon. You'll be able to go in and, and get their model. So, yeah, I mean, Stability AI is a company to keep an eye on. And going back to the copyright issue, they're, they're getting sued right now on their image generation technology. They're the one that got caught, um, reproducing Getty image watermarks in their image gen outputs. So, um, I would say they're, they're interesting from an innovation perspective. They're also interesting from a legal perspective because they are definitely pushing the envelope of, um, things that I think will be challenged legally in the mm. next year or two and uh, unapologetic about it. So they're, they're a really interesting company. I could see um, them being painted as the villain in, in, in a, a number of cases moving forward, but they don't seem to care. They actually, Ahmad actually, the CEO seems to sort of relish the role that they're currently playing of challenging the norm, mm. not in, in, not condoning it, like I'm not. I'm just kind of stating an observation that they're a company you're going to hear a lot more about for a lot of different reasons.
1: Well, it really seems like with our topics today that legal action and controversy <laughs> are a theme running through here because our last topic today is. I'm just going to throw this out here: AI Drake, an anonymous. Is it, is,
0: I've seen like Drake with the. A- oh D- yeah, R-A-I-K-E.
1: <laughs> so. An anonymous TikTok user, someone that was not like some big person with a big following, used AI to generate a fake song called Heart on My Sleeve. And it is a jaw-droppingly realistic, completely AI-generated song between a simulated version of the rapper Drake and the artist The Weeknd. This song got to like 10 plus million views very, very quickly before being taken down across a variety of platforms because. The song drew a very negative response, both from Drake, who uh, posted on Instagram about it, and his record label, Universal Music Group, UMG, which is like one of the biggest record labels out there. In addition to getting the song taken down, UMG is now asking Spotify and Apple Music to block AI companies from training models on their catalogs. Now, as of right this second, UMG has not taken formal legal action here i don't even know if they know (laughs) the person responsible but this seemed like a pretty big deal it did it was one of those stories because it's drake it got everyone paying attention the response was very visceral very immediate what were your thoughts when you saw this
0: inevitable like i mean it was obvious we were going to land here very quickly and now we're here uh the backlash is shocking to me even Mm -hmm. though i expected it of the people who are upset that they're restricting other artists from doing dealing other people's stuff and building these synthetic versions um i'll be i I don't know i'm going to be really interested to see how this one plays out i mean again from from a someone with a pr background like the pr side of this for drake Mm -hmm. and the running the risk of like a lot of people who especially the younger generation who've seen nothing wrong with this and maybe thought the song was awesome and want to have access to it. And then like Drake kept them from getting access to it. And does that actually hurt him at mm. all from an audience perspective? Um, I don't know. I haven't had a lot of time to think about this one and the ramifications downstream, but certainly from a legal perspective, it's like, okay, here we go. Like it, this is the kinds of things it's going to take to set legal precedent around the taking of copyrighted material. And so I think that's why we wanted to make sure we at least gave this a nod in, in the rapid fire this week is it's a developing story. Um, I, I could definitely see this being a topic we're gonna probably come back to again and again because yeah. I, I could see this really uh, accelerating the legal uh, cases around some of the copyright issues we've been talking about on the show for the last couple months.
1: Yeah, definitely, kind of a weird and fascinating story. You know, we all—I think most of us remember who are old enough—remember the legal battles over Napster and piracy sites in the beginning of the in the early two thousands. But um, this is just a whole different animal with completely new creative coming out from artists. That did you they, listen to the
0: song? By the way, you and know, I are both hip l- hop fans. Did you, did you I listened I?
1: Listen to parts of it, and I've seen also on TikTok. It's quite. Uh, often now we're seeing, they're doing like Tupac and Biggie yeah. covering songs. Uh, we're doing new songs and I was like, this is so crazy. It's going to blow up of both of them. <laughs> it's going to
0: be a whack-a-mole game. Like they, they're going to yeah. knock out like the Drake one and you're going to have a thousand other ones. It, it's It is going to be such an interesting time.
1: (laughs) And we will continue to cover it because that's all we got for today, Paul. But there's plenty, plenty more going on in the world of AI. Really appreciate you, as always, kind of unpacking everything for us. Um, Thanks again
0: yeah and thanks to all of our listeners and again kind of like I, I know with the book at the beginning if you're loving the podcast like we're getting i mean it's amazing all the people that reach out to me on linkedin every week just that are podcast listeners that you know i don't i don't know personally but kind of getting to know it through the podcast community um if you have a chance leave a five-star review on apple or spotify we'd love to you know have your support kind of building this podcast audience and continuing to deliver value there and um, just spread the word if you're enjoying it. It's, you know, we hope we're bringing up a lot of important conversations that maybe aren't happening otherwise. And um, the more people in on the corporate side and business, uh, maybe nonprofit, wherever, whatever your career path is or business is, the more we can get these conversations seated within those organizations, the better chance we have of really advancing AI in a positive way in the business world and society. So, um, you know, people you know, ask me what they can do. Like, give a a review, give a rating um, and help us get this podcast further discovered so we can spread the word and all work in the same direction to responsible application of AI. So thanks to everybody for listening. We will talk to you again next week.